All right, well, do you know what uh, turns people away from churches and youth groups a lot of the time? It's this. It's that Christians are such hypocrites. Okay, I mean, supposedly Christians live by some sort of higher standard, uh, but really they're no different to anybody else. So why would I bother with that sham religion? I don't need that. They're all hypocrites anyway. Now, do you know what I'm talking about there? you got headlines like this one. Born-again Christians, just as likely to get a divorce as non-Christians. Or there's a book out there called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. Why are Christians living just like the rest of the world? And so here are some statistics from America. Out of 12,000 teenagers who pledged to uh, wait until they were married, 80% of them had had sex outside marriage seven years later. Now, those are American statistics. I think the situation is a little bit different for Christianity uh, in Australia. But how many evangelical Christians do you think give more than 10% of their income away? Well, the the studies show 9%, less than 1 in 10, give more than that. Evangelical Christians are more likely than other Christian groups out there to complain about living next to a black neighbor. Now, again, that's an American statistic. But as Lecrae says, hey, after 10,000 years in the West and the church is getting bigger daily without understanding worship, you, uh, some regenerated, but a lot ain't saved. You walk outside and be surprised because the block ain't changed. And the numbers, they be getting them, but something still ain't hitting them. America ain't Christian. They just practicing the ritual. I wonder if that's something that you've ever experienced. You know, that, those Christians who aren't really any different to anybody else. They go to church on Sundays. They smell a little bit re- religious. But basically, it's just an add-on to, to the same way of life that everyone else lives. And it's hypocrisy. And I could understand why that would turn you away from Christianity. But actually, maybe you're missing what a Christian is, because a Christian is not someone who says, I'm better than you. It's not about following a set of rules. It's not about being good enough. A true Christian starts by saying, I'm a mess. I don't need a new plan. I don't need uh, a, a change of lifestyle. I don't need help. I need rescuing. I'm a sinner, and I need saving. And a true Christian will never stop saying that. We don't believe that we're good people. We just believe that we're forgiven people. And so actually, yes, Christians are hypocrites. That's why we need a savior. In fact, I think everyone's a hypocrite. No one lives up to their own standards. In fact, that's nothing compared to God's standards. At least in being a Christian, you own up to it. At least in being a Christian, you find forgiveness for it. And so, yes, I'm a, Christ- I'm a hypocrite. And all the Christians that I know are hypocrites. And churches are full of them. In fact, there's always room for more. You should come join us. At least you'll be a forgiven hypocrite like us. But is that as far as the answer goes? You know? Does Christianity offer nothing more than forgiveness? Can you just get your ticket and stay the same? Or is there something wrong with those statistics? Is there actually something very wrong for that person who says they're a Christian but just looks like everybody else. Well, Jesus says there is actually something very wrong with that. Something's missing. I wonder, has anyone here read the book Crazy Love by Francis Chan? Very good book. Listen to what Francis Chan has to say. We all know something's wrong. At first I thought it was just me, and then I stood before 20,000 Christian college students, and I asked, how many of you have read the New Testament and wondered if we in the church are missing it? And when every hand went up, I felt comforted because at least I'm not crazy. Don't worry, this isn't another book written to bash churches. 
I think it's far too easy to blame the church without acknowledging that we are each part of the church and therefore responsible. But I think we all feel deeply, even if we haven't voiced it, that the church in many ways is not doing well. Have you felt that? That we're missing something? That there's a gap between what Jesus describes and what we actually see in Christianity today? Just reading the Bible and attending church and avoiding the big sins, is that what passionate, wholehearted love for God looks like? And the big point of this passage that we've had read for us tonight is a whopping great pile of no to that. Okay, Jesus says, if you want to come and follow me, that's got to change your whole life, everything about it. You've got to leave everything behind. And he's asking for absolute devotion, complete loyalty, total obedience. And I want to give it to you in the words of a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I think is an epic name. And he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We're going to come back to that statement because that's the main point for tonight. But this realization I've just given you helps us make sense of those statistics that I referred to before. Because the problem with those statistics is this. They start by asking if a person's a Christian and then they look at how a person lives. But Jesus says, no, look at how they live and I'll tell you if they're a Christian. If you were here last week, you would have um, remembered that in this same chapter, Jesus has just kind of thrown open a big invitation to to everybody to come and join the kingdom of God for free. Jesus is saying, come with me to paradise forever. Doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you are, just come, believe in me, it's free. That's the invitation. And so I'd say it's not a surprise that there's a big crowd there. And even today, actually, it's quite popular to claim Jesus. Adolf Hitler, uh, he actually claimed to be a Christian. Kanye West claimed that Jesus walks with him, which I think is quite interesting because in his latest album, he says this, I know he's the most high, but I'm a close high. That's a crazy thing to say. Oprah wants us to believe that she's a Christian. Even Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus have claimed Jesus. Miley says, my faith is what keeps me grounded, which I would wonder about. But actually, I'm not really trying to pass judgment on whether these people are Christians or not. I mean, you probably could, actually, because Jesus spells it out pretty clearly. Verse 26 spells it out crystal clear what a Christian is. And we'll come back to that. But before we do, I just want to apply this to us. It is possible to think that you are a Christian and not actually be a Christian. Many people who claim Jesus are not actually his followers. Just because you go to a Christian school, that does not make you a Christian. Just because uh, you call yourself a Christian, that does not make you a Christian. Just because you've got morals, doesn't make you a Christian. You got baptized, doesn't make you a Christian. Or any other religious ritual, knowing the answers, doesn't make you a Christian. Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. Going to church, G-team, doesn't make you a Christian. Liking Jesus, that doesn't make you a Christian. Even trying hard doesn't make you a Christian. And I know some of those things because a bit of my story, growing up through high school, I called myself a Christian. I believed it was all true. I came to church with my Christian family uh, most Sundays, if not every Sunday. I even tried to tell my mates about Jesus. But looking back on it now, I believe that I actually wasn't a Christian. And so guys, please don't assume that you're a Christian. That's the most dangerous thing that you could assume. It would be terrible to get to the end of your life and realize that you were wrong about that. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, here's point number two. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. 
Now, just so you know I'm not making that up, I want you to look with me at this passage. Verse 26, you might even underline it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, do you get what Jesus is saying there? Twice he says, you can't be my disciple unless, the first one, verse 26, if you come to Jesus but you don't hate a whole bunch of people, then you can't be my disciple. And the second one in verse 27, if you don't carry your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Now, I reckon at this point you're supposed to be like confused cat here. Um, Let's get him up there. Um, You're like, what the heck is going on? I read this passage with a bunch of year sevens this week, and they were reading it, they're like, yeah, as soon as I start to understand it. Why? Why is Jesus telling us to hate people? I don't understand. I think that's what you're supposed to, to do. But what is Jesus saying here? Well, firstly, you've got to understand what a disciple is. It seems to be pretty important to Jesus because he keeps talking about it. That's what this whole passage is about. So what is a disciple? Well, the word actually means a student. It's a bit like in the movie Karate Kid. Has anyone seen the movie? Not enough of you. You should all go rent it. It's an epic movie. In that movie, you will learn essential karate skills like wax on, wax off. And you'll also learn how to catch a fly with chopsticks. Okay, well, you can keep practicing. You may not do it. In Karate Kid, there's this little dude called Daniel. And he wants some help to beat some bullies to get this cute girl. And so he goes to Mr. Miyagi. And he kind of becomes a disciple of Mr. Miyagi. He starts to learn from Mr. Miyagi about karate. Mr. Miyagi becomes like his master, his teacher. He starts to do what Mr. Miyagi says, even ridiculous seeming stuff like painting his fence and cleaning his car, which seem like really weird things to do, but actually end up apparently being very good training for karate. That's what a disciple is. It's a way of life that's totally devoted, like Daniel to Mr. Miyagi, to learning from and obeying your master. Now, for Christians, that's Jesus. So a disciple is someone totally devoted to learning from and obeying your master, Jesus. That's a disciple. And it's pretty clear from this passage that to be a Christian means to be a disciple. What is a Christian? It's a disciple. Verse 25, Jesus is thinking, there are these big crowds following me. I better make sure that they know what they're getting themselves in for. I should tell them what it will mean to actually be one of my people. And so to come to Jesus... To become a Christian is actually to become a disciple, someone who lives their whole life devoted to learning from and obeying their master, Jesus. And so if you want to be saved by Jesus, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to work out what a disciple is. You need to become a disciple. But what does it look like to become a disciple? Well, here's the clearest statement in the Bible. Jesus says, this is kind of like a little point under this number two, you've got to hate your family. You've got to hate your family. Not really the clearest statement in the Bible. It's a pretty extreme statement. If you have a look at verse 26, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet even their own life, that person can't be my disciple. That's a very extreme statement, especially when you consider all the other statements in the Bible and from Jesus. Statements like, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. In Matthew chapter 15, he actually says, Honor your father and mother. I think it would be very hard to honor your father and mother and also hate them. Now, noticing this kind of stuff, it helps you read your Bible well. Because I actually think sometimes we're a little bit quick to assume that Jesus doesn't mean what he says. 
I think a lot of the time he actually does mean what he says. And we just feel uncomfortable and so we try to weasel our way out of it. In general, I reckon we should probably take Jesus' words a little bit more seriously than we do. But when you have clear evidence, and you've got that here, that Jesus in one place says one thing and in another place says another thing, I reckon then you've got good reason to ask, why is Jesus doing that? Is he doing it to make a point more than to give an actual literal thing? Do you ever have this experience where you need to make something a little bit more extreme to get your point across? I used to have a friend in year 10 uh, who had OCD. And he used to have a perfectly clean watch. And he used to sit here, and I would sit here. So there's his watch. And I would just put a fingerprint on his watch. (laughs) Hours of entertainment right there. (laughs) For me, at least, anyway. But you know when someone's getting on your nerves like that, and sometimes you just got to say, stop that, or I'll punch you in the face, and then I'll throw chainsaws at you, and then I'll rub dog poo in it, and then I'll set fire to your house. Do you, do you, does that ever happen to you? Now, do you really mean all of those things? I don't, I hope not. <laughs> Maybe some of them you mean. But what you're doing is you're trying to make a point, and to make that point strongly, you're using very extreme language. Now, I don't think we're doing the same thing. I don't think we're like getting on Jesus' nerves here or anything, but I do think that's what he's doing. He's trying to get our attention, and he's trying to make us realize what he is saying. If you think you can come to me and love all of these other things, then you have to realize that to come to me means hating all those other things. In what sense? Well, here's a helpful cartoon that I found that I think explains it. What he's not saying, what he is saying. What he's not saying is you have to become one of those emo kids that uh, is just a hater, hates everybody, hates everything. Not saying that, but the bottom one there. He's saying that we have to love Jesus so much, our love for God so strong, that our love for any other person or thing looks like hate in comparison. Now, I don't know, do you guys agree that that's what Jesus is saying there? I think, I think that's what he's saying. But even that is a radical thing. That is a very challenging thing. If that's true, can you love anything more than Jesus? Well, no, because your love for Jesus has to be so strong that that looks like hate by comparison. What about your parents? Can you love them more than Jesus? No. Can you love them close? No. What about your wife? No. What about your own life? Not even your own life. And for someone as selfish as me, that's a very hard thing. I think, I think that's the hardest one for me. I have to hate my own life in comparison to how much I love Jesus? Let me put this in other words. There can be no competitors for Jesus' place in your life. Jesus is demanding to be number one and to be number one by a long way. He's calling for total allegiance. It's a call to not have one other thing in your life that affects your decision in any way that's even close to the way that Jesus affects it. So that the single biggest factor that's governing your decision making is, what would Jesus, my teacher, my master, what would he say? Because I'm a a disciple of Jesus. Now I'll try and give you an illustration of this way of thinking. Because many of you, you'll finish school and you'll face this question of where you will live, uh, what you will do. 
Now, here's the way that most people approach that decision. They ask either, well, where do I want to live? Or what do I want to do? And then they either um, get the job that they need to have to live where they want to live, or they live where they need to live to get the job that they want to have. But either way, what is the thing that's directing their decision-making there? You guys tell me. Themselves. It's the I. I want to live there, or I want this job. Now, for someone who's made this change that Jesus is talking about here, where now I hate my own life, I consider it so unimportant to me compared to how important Jesus is to me that it looks like hate, here's how that person would make this decision. Number one, where will I go to church? Or in other words, where will I serve Jesus? Where's there a need? Or where is there a good church that I can get involved with? Number two, okay then, where do I need to live to go to that church? Number three, okay then, what job do I need to work to live where I want to need to live to go to the place that I want to go to church? Do you see how that totally flips upside down the way that we approach decisions? Now, how can Jesus ask for this kind of unconditional obedience and devotion to him? Who does he think that he is? Well, actually, if you're tracking, that's actually the reason that he can make this kind of claim. It's where it all comes from. Because Jesus thinks, you see, obviously, in this passage, by the thing that he's asking people to do, you see that he actually thinks that he is the Lord of the universe. And elsewhere, he says he's the Savior that you need. What's the word Lord mean? It means master. It means commander or owner. The one in charge, Barack Obama, he's the Lord of the United States. He's nobody. Jesus is the Lord of the entire universe, every Adam, every person. And lots of people think that they can have Jesus as their Savior, but not as their Lord. But that is very foolish. In this passage, Jesus is saying, don't be a fool. If you're going to trust me, don't be so foolish as to think that you can trust me as your Savior, but keep me at arm's length as your Lord. Do you guys know this? People used to think that the universe revolved around Earth. Do you guys know that? You should have learned it in science, I think. One day, a dude called Nicholas Copernicus, they had good names back then, discovered that we had it completely wrong, that the Earth actually revolved around the sun, and so we're not at the center of the universe. We're not even at the center of our own solar system. And, and Copernicus realized that he needed to change the way he saw everything in light of this He had to stop living and acting like he was the center of the universe. The Christian, the true disciple of Jesus, is the person who's done a Copernican revolution. Up until this point, you've been thinking that it all revolves around you. And now you need to realize, no, it all revolves around the sun, S-O-N. The sun is at the center of the universe. It's not about what you want. It's about what he wants. And so that's why in this passage we're seeing that when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. Metaphorically die, yeah, to give up control of your life so it's no longer yours. The old me, all of my hopes, my desires, my dreams, my ambitions, they're gone. They're dead. My life now belongs to Jesus. Now I say metaphorically die, but it might mean actually die. Have a look at verse 26. If Oh, sorry, verse 27. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You know, it said in verse 25, Jesus was traveling. Do you know where he was traveling? 
He's traveling to Jerusalem where he knew he'd be pinned up on the cross like a live piñata to die in front of the whole city. What's Jesus saying when he says, you can't be my disciple unless you take up your cross and follow me? Well, he's saying, I'm going to suffer and die. If you're going to be my follower, you need to be prepared to suffer and die as well. Why would being a Christian mean suffering and dying? Well, that's how they treated our master. Do you think We're joining his team. Do you think they're going to treat us any differently? You should expect opposition as being a Christian. And that's not even to mention the difficulties of self-denial, self-control as you try and obey his commands. I find it very hard to be a Christian. I really do. I mean, it's, it's full of joy. It's a thousand times better than before I was a Christian. But I do find it very, very hard. Guys, whenever the New Testament explains discipleship to us, it immediately warns us of the cost. Being a follower of Jesus could split your family. It could threaten your life. It could call you to radical sacrifice of your job, your money, your desires, your hopes, your reputation. And I reckon it's worth saying, even potentially your life. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Do you know that the man who wrote that, I've got his picture there, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, do you know that he actually did end up dying for Christ? In many ways, he died on the, on the way a few times as he made different sacrifices, but then he died in the ultimate way. This guy Bonhoeffer, he was a Christian in Nazi Germany. As a Christian, he took stances and said things that got him into trouble. He wouldn't, for example, fight for his country. Now, some of his friends managed to pull some strings and actually got him out of Nazi Germany into America, where he was actually safe and he could have ridden out the war. But he felt that he wasn't obeying his, his Lord and, and Master Jesus by staying there. He felt that he should be back with his countrymen. And so because of his allegiance to Jesus, after just 26 days of being in America, he went back. And he never left. Because of the stances that he took and the things that he said in the time that he was in Germany, he ended up in a Nazi prison. He ended up spending the last two years of his life. And for the whole, this is what blows my mind, for the whole of those two years, he was engaged to be married. And he was never married. Two years after being put in prison, at dawn on the 9th of April, 1945, 39 years of age, he was hanged. But do you know... Bonhoeffer, when he was in prison, he, never, he said he never regretted the decisions that he made for Christ to get there. You know, that I'm, I'm guessing, and I pick up from this, that there comes a time when you're in a Nazi prison, you realize you're not getting out. Even then, I want you to listen to what he wrote. You must never doubt that I am thankful and glad to go the way I'm being led. My past life is abundantly full of God's mercy and above all sin stands the forgiving love of the crucified one. To Bornhofer, his execution was not a surprise. When he signed up, that's what he signed up for. He signed up to follow a saviour who had been executed. And he'd already agreed that Christ could take his life and do with it whatever he wanted. Brothers and sisters... If we, I'm talking to you, if we answer the call to be disciples, where will it lead us? What decisions and, and separations will it demand? Now, to answer that question, we need to go to Jesus, because only Jesus knows the answer to that. 
Only Jesus, who calls us to follow him, knows where our journey will end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy because you are living the life that you were made for, the life that your Lord and God wants, and you're on that road with him. So guys, in conclusion, what what do we make of those Christians who seem no different to the rest of the world? Well, Jesus would say in this passage that there's no evidence that they are really Christians. Not everyone who's a fan is a follower. If you didn't know Christ, would your life look the same? Is there any evidence that you are, in fact, a disciple? I'll finish with a few points of application. Number one, don't forget this is not what saves you. If I haven't made this clear throughout, let me make this crystal clear now. You don't go to heaven by being a good disciple. None of us are good disciples. You get to heaven simply by trusting in Jesus. That's it, you're saved. And then you try to live like this. I'll give you a picture to illustrate it. Imagine a homeless man begging in front of Disneyland. Okay? Now, he's, he's there because he's been a scumbag all his life. He totally deserves to be out on the street. Um, his clothes are stinky. They've got holes in them. He's, he's so short of clothes, he's wearing meggings, which are like men's jeggings. I don't know if you've picked up on that trend. Things are pretty bad for this guy. Now, the owner of Disneyland comes out to this guy and says to him, mate, I've got an offer for you. You can come in. You can live in the Disneyland Resort. You can eat at the restaurants for free. Lifetime pass to the rides. All you've got to do is throw away those stinking rands and put on rags, the clothes that he's wearing, and put on these new clothes that I'm giving you for free. I want you to imagine what it would be like if that homeless person said, are you serious? You want me to throw away these? Don't you realize these are the only things that I've got? You're asking me to give away everything? And the point of the analogy is this. That guy has done nothing to deserve Disneyland. He didn't earn it. It's not based on his performance at all. But he does have to give up everything he's got to be part of it, although you, could, you can't really call that a cost in comparison to what he's getting. And guys, that's the kingdom of heaven. Give up everything, but don't ever think that you're having to earn it or that it's based on your performance because the truth is that you will fail. I fail every day. Jesus will forgive you. So the important thing is not whether you do it perfectly, it's whether the direction in your life, your effort, your desires are towards this kind of life or away from it. Number two, don't give up. Because I wonder if right now you're feeling like this seems really scary. And I want you to remember that Christ promised also to send his Holy Spirit to help you. And he will never command you to do anything that he doesn't also give you the strength to do. And so as you weigh up the cost of following Jesus, remember that he will be with you, helping you through it all. Number three, don't hide the cost in your evangelism. Evangelism means telling people about Jesus so they can come and have eternal life as well. In your evangelism, remember that Jesus thought it was important to tell people what they were getting themselves in for. And so don't hide what it will actually mean for their life, or otherwise what they might do is sign up and then a little bit later realize, whoa, 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 this isn't what I signed up for, and they'll bail. And so our goal at youth isn't to get big crowds. It's to see deep, committed disciples. Number three, don't rush in. If you are thinking about becoming a Christian, make sure you count the cost. 
because it will mean changing your life. But actually, make sure you also count the cost of not becoming a Christian. I think that's what's going on in verses 31 to 32. I won't read it, but the king realizes he can't win the battle. If you rebel against Jesus, the cost of that, you'll pay for it for eternity. And Jesus said, what good is it to get everything this world has to offer and give up your soul, your life forever? Make sure you guys count the cost, yes. But you'd also be a fool not to count the cost of not following Jesus. Number five, don't slow down. If you are a Christian tonight, check whether you're still committed to giving everything up to follow Jesus. Are you still seeking to be a true disciple? Verse 33 says this. In the same way, every one of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Everything. Now, what does that include? Well, what do you have? It includes possessions. It includes your time. It includes your energy. It includes your desires, all your ambitions, all your dreams, everything. Do you need to have balance in your life? Jesus says no. Don't fall into the trap of compartmentalizing your life. Do you know what I mean? Where you've got the Christian compartment, and then you've got the soccer compartment, and the home life compartment, and the stuff that I put on my iPod compartment, and the what I do at parties com- compartment, and the, the way I talk to teachers compartment. No. Are you a Christian or not? Because if you are, every compartment is a disciple of Jesus compartment. And so, guys, if you're going to follow Jesus, he's got to have first place by a long way. And verse 35 would tell you, if you don't do that, you won't be very useful to God. And so, guys, tonight is a call to take Jesus seriously. How have you been going at that? And that brings me to my last point of application. Number six, don't try to live with one foot in the boat. I don't know if you've ever been stupid enough to stand with one foot in a boat and one foot on the shore, but it's painful. The boat starts to drift away and you find yourself getting a groin injury or wet. Now, too many, too many Christians try to live with one foot in Jesus' boat and one foot in the world's boat. And then they wonder why it hurts. Because your desires are split. You want one thing, but you also want the opposite. And you wonder why you're in pain. And I think a lot of Christians would actually find this life a lot easier if they would just pick one. Guys, tonight, make sure you've got both feet in Jesus' boat. Don't try to hang on to suffer the world. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Have you given all of your life to Christ as an uncompromising disciple? Let me pray. Father God, we, we recognize that if this is who your son is, we've fallen very far short of treating him that way. And so we are sorry Thank you that Christ came to die on the cross to pay the penalty, to deal with our sin, to remove it, to buy our forgiveness. Please forgive us. Please help us to live as your disciples from now on. Amen.